Okay, so today we're starting a new series on the five forgotten books of the Bible. The, um, we've taken, uh, we didn't know how to finish this year uh, because we've had so much change. We hadn't planned what to do the next five weeks before we hit the Christmas series. And so we're thinking about it and then we just thought, we've never preached sermons on 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Philemon or Obadiah. And they are the five smallest books in the entire Bible. You miss them. It's very hard to find them in the Bible because they're so small. All of them are just um, one-chapter books. And um, so we thought, let's do a sermon series looking at these five forgotten books and what they teach us about truth and love and hospitality and partnership and humility. So that's what we're doing over the coming five weeks. Today we're looking at uh, 2 John, which was just read for us, and it's a beautiful letter. Now, a couple of you uh, will have kind of noticed this... um, just noticing the slides. Okay. Uh, you would have uh, seen in the papers a couple of weeks ago this whole Essendon football saga involving the, um, the resignation of Andrew Thorburn, Thor- Thorburn, who is a kind of a leading CEO in our country, and he was invited to become the CEO of Essendon Football Club. A day later, he resigned because the... Uh, the media picked up a story about the church he was part of, uh, Church City on a Hill, Melbourne, um, fairly typical evangelical church in Melbourne, and they picked up on one of the sermons that Guy Mason, the pastor there, preached uh, something like eight years ago on the topic of um, abortion, and then another sermon that was preached by someone else on the topic of homosexuality. And it became clear to the Essendon Football Club that they were very uncomfortable having someone, a Christian, on their board who held to, who, who, who just went to a church that taught these things. And as a result, applied significant amount of pressure on him. They said, either you need to resign your position on the board at City on a Hill Church, or you need to resign your position at this football club. And he chose the church over the football club. Incredible. There's courage for you. Um, Then Dan Andrews, well, just at the time, uh, Dan Andrews came out with this statement, the Premier of Victoria. He said, um, those views, speaking about the views of City on a Hill Church on the topic of abortion and homosexuality, he said, those views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views. That kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred... Bigotry, it's just wrong, and he encouraged uh, Essendon to get rid of Andrew Thorburn, which was ironic because um, the Premier, Dan Andrews, is a Catholic, and uh, the Catholic Church teaches the very same things on the topic of abortion and homosexuality, and yet he hasn't resigned his post as Premier of the state. So a little bit ironic. Now, here's the question. What do you do when uh, you come into contact with people who believe different things that you, than you believe? What do you do when you hear people say things that you don't agree? Well, you have one of three options, don't you? You can either argue with the person, uh, you can debate them, you can say, you know, that's interesting that you say that. I'm not sure that's true. Is Matt Straw in the room? Grant, would you be able to just close my PowerPoint and then reopen it because I think um, pulling the baptism stuff in has messed up all the, 
all the stuff. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. So first thing you can do is uh, you can argue with them. Second thing you can do, which is probably what most of us who uh, avoid conflict do, uh, is we just switch. Can <laughs> so I think close it. Ex exit PowerPoint. Don't save. And then reopen it. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you, buddy. And, okay. Here we go. There we go. White text, not black text. You can read it now. Um, so the second thing you can do is switch off. Or well, the third thing you can do is we can cancel them. We stop the person from speaking what they're saying. We don't like their message, so we shoot the messenger. We cancel their opportunity, we deplatform them, and we remove any chance for them to say what they are saying ever again. And really that third option is the nature of true bigotry and hatred. What you're saying must not be said or expressed by anybody, and therefore you must not. And that is what true bigotry is. And um, it's interesting that those who label others as bigots today are those who are doing the very thing of bigotry, which is shutting down alternate views. Really, what we're having in society at the moment is a conflict between what um, a friend of mine calls enlightenment, liberal humanism, and postmodern progressive tribalism. Uh, the background to the Enlightenment in the 18th century, the Enlightenment believed, was very optimistic about the truth. The Enlightenment believed in the truth and they believed in humanity's ability to arrive at the truth. There was this belief that somehow through rationality, through the empirical method, through the development of science, even through the imagination and creativity, that we could arrive together at what is true, and the truth could be expressed in words, and therefore what we need to do is we need to debate the truth. We need to argue, discuss, research, all of it in words. So that was the Enlightenment liberal humanism of the 19th century, believed very much in the possibility of arriving at the truth. But for the last 50 or so years in the West, we've had what might be called postmodern progressive tribalism. And in postmodernism, you have no belief in absolute truth. That there is no objective order out there. All we have is my opinion and your opinion, my journey and your journey, my truth and your truth. And who's to say that your truth is better than my truth? Don't impose your truth on me, and I won't impose my truth on you because there is no overarching truth above it all. So I've got my truth, you've got your truth, let's just run in our own lanes and stay away from one another. Let's just let people choose what their truth is. Don't tell anyone else that they're wrong. Don't impose your truth on anyone else. And the irony is that in postmodern progressive tribalism, we end up cancelling other people for saying their truth. But nevertheless... Postmodern progressive tribalism says, hey, there is no absolute truth, so just simply affirm my right to choose what I deem to be true. And in postmodern progressive tribalism, what ends up happening is we equate love with affirmation. And so when people say their truth in the public square, and when their truth hurts my feelings because it doesn't affirm the way I've chosen to live, then we say, hey, that's unloving. 
And that's because there is no absolute truth. So why are you using truth as a weapon against me? And when you're living in a postmodern, progressive, tribalist culture where there is no truth, the outcome is you can't really dialogue and debate with one another because you've got no shared foundation upon which to appeal to. So what ends up happening is you just scream at each other because you don't believe in truth. There's nothing that I can hold you to which is external to both of us. There's merely only opinions, and what happens then as we enter the public square is we just shout and yell, and we can't reason and argue logically because there's nothing to appeal to external to ourselves. There's my choice, there's your choice, and if your choice hurts me and the way I'm living, if, the, if your truth doesn't affirm me, then I will just get very angry and call you a bigot and not actually have a rational conversation. So this is the world we live in. It's this conflict between enlightenment, liberal humanism, which believes in the possibility of truth, and progressive uh, postmodern tribalism that doesn't believe in truth, and therefore just says, hey, if you love me, you just affirm my chosen way of living. And that brings us to the topic for today, because really this comes down to the issue of truth and love. And we all feel this kind of conflict between truth and love in, in our own personal lives in the world we live us. We value truth. Most of us do believe in some truth apart from kind of what we, you know, you know, apart from our own personal values and preferences. And we do believe that truth builds trust and gives us a solid view of reality. And we also value love. We want what's best for each other. And so often we find ourselves stuck. Do we say the truth or do we love people? And all of us know truth-tellers. They can be insightful, but rude, opinionated, and brash. And we all know people who are loving. They're kind and gentle, but often they're, they have no backbone, they're directionless, and they're undiscerning. Truth and love we often feel exclude each other. If you want to show love, well, perhaps I need to dial back the truth. Uh, or perhaps if I need to say the truth, you're going to be hurt, and I, but I just need to say it because it's true. Now, what do we do in this? How do we live in the tension of being people of truth and love? Because we believe, um, you know, postmodern, there's something true to postmodern progressive tribalism, which is we ought to love people. And there's something true about enlightenment liberal humanism, that there is a truth. And so how do we hold both of these things together? And that's what the letter of 2 John really is all about. And John, Jesus' best friend, one of his closest disciples, his message is simply this, don't forget truth and don't forget love. And I want to have a, pick, I want to have a look at each of these in turn. So open your Bibles to John. Uh, there's no chapters, 2 John verse 5, that's weird saying that, isn't it? 2 John verse 5, usually, usually we say 2 John chapter 1 verse 5, but here we go. Uh, this is what John, first of all, says, walk in love, verse 5. And now, dear lady, uh, the lady uh, that John is writing to here could be a literal lady, possibly, a, a real woman he's writing to in the local church, in a local church in the middle 
uh, around the Mediterranean. It could be that. I take it that this is a way he's referring to a church. So if I were to write you a letter, I'd write, Dear Lady of Surrey Hills, or something like that. I take it that's what he's doing. It could be either or. I don't really see the significance of either choice. But it is interesting. Jesus calls the church his bride. And I think John's picking up on that here. Anyway, dear lady, that's who he addresses. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now notice that phrase, from the beginning. It means this command was given to us by the Lord Jesus himself, from the beginning. The command to love one another, it's not a new command. It's not like some new thing that John's bringing. John's saying, guys, you follow Jesus, this is what he was on about. Loving one another. Right to the heart of Jesus' ethical teaching, that's it. Boil it down into one statement. It's walk in love. Love. That's what Jesus taught about how we are to treat one another. And then he defines what that love is. Notice, this is love, verse 6, this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you've heard from the beginning, his command is this, that you walk in love. Now, um, love is quite simply walking in Jesus' commands. And what is it that he commands? To walk in love. Now that sounds like a circular argument, doesn't it? We debated this in the staff team a couple of weeks ago. You know, like, what is going on here? He's saying, this is love, walking his commands. What are his commands? Walk in love. So this kind of, uh, how do we get our head around this? Well, what he's teaching us here is that if you really want to love others, then you'd listen to God's commands, because all of God's commands, boil them down, what are they all about? They're all about how you might better love each other. Because the goal of Jesus' commands is that we care for one another, if you were serious about obeying Jesus' commands, you would realize you've got to start loving others. And if you loved others, every time you read Jesus' commands, you'd be going, oh yeah, of course. That's what it looks like to love my neighbors. And so that's why... Even as Christians uh, who, are, who are in a new covenant, we go back even to the old covenant and we learn from the commands of the Old Testament. So here are five of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. What does that command mean? It means that we must protect life, that we are to care for life, that we're to make peace, that we're to avoid violence in act and thought, we're to love one another. Or you shall not commit adultery. What does that mean? It means that we protect relationships that we build flourishing and faithful marriages and friendships, we prevent betrayal and breakdown. You shall not steal. What does that mean? We're to protect our neighbor's property. We're to care for their stuff, distribute resources fairly, and we're to share what we have rather than stealing what they have. We're not to bear false witness. What does that mean? We're to protect truth. We're to only speak what's true and helpful, we're to unmask lies that threaten people's well-being. And finally, you shall not cover. In other words, protect your heart. And we need to vow what's best for others. And we need to rejoice in what they have rather than wish and plot to get what they have and where to be content. So do you notice that every one of the commands on the second half of the Ten Commandments are really commands, hey, if you loved someone... Let me just flesh out what that would look like. 
It'll look like you protect relationships, property, etc., etc. So all of God's commands tell us where we should go if we were motivated by love for our neighbor and love for God. And so as I grow in my understanding of what God has commanded, I'm going to be better able to love people because I'm going to see the nuances, the particularities, the situations where I can put them first in my life. And as I practice loving, I'm going to have more interest in going back to the Bible and seeing the variety of ways I can love people in greater depth. All right, that's the first point. Let me uh, just... Ref- oh, okay. Let's go to the second point, and that is that we must walk in truth. Walk in truth. Now, you may have noticed the tone of John's letter changes in verse 7. Uh, in verse 5, he says, guys, love one another. Come on. And in verse 10, he says, don't welcome them. And it seems as though the tone of John, he's like, I love John. He's a very affectionate writer. Twice in this short letter, he talks about his joy in the people he's writing to. He, tell, he calls them dearly. He, he uses the language of dearly, dear lady. You know, he loves this group of people, right? Doesn't stop talking about love in all of his letters. And he writes, first, I love one another, guys. Walk in love. And then verse 10, it's like, but don't welcome them, right? So what's going on here? Um, how do we hold these two commands together? Um, because the second command really hinges on him saying, you need to walk in the truth. And the reason he's saying this is because he loves the church and he's telling them not to let into the church those who would deceive them with lies about Jesus. So have a look at verse 7. This is what he says. I say all of this, that you're to walk in the truth, because, and here's the context, many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world And such people, such a person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Um, Now, what's going on here? Well, the context is that the gospel spread. Many people have put their faith in Jesus. And when the Christians traveled in the first century to some city on a business journey or a missionary journey, um, you know, be traveling through the ancient world for business or to share the gospel with a new city. And as Christians traveled, they had a problem of where should we stay? They didn't have Airbnb or the Hilton or the Travel Lodge or the Adena or something like that. Uh, There were inns, but they were notoriously dirty and flea-infested. They were places where people got drunk and slept with prostitutes. And so the Christians didn't want to hang out in the inns. And so as a result, it was very natural in the ancient world for Christian people on their travels that they would be given hospitality by members of local churches. And that word hospitality, we think it means to cook up a nice meal and eat it with friends, but the Greek word hospitality literally means the love of the stranger. And that's what would happen. Christians would travel through the ancient world and they depended on... Uh, on receiving the hospitality on Christian strangers who would take them into their homes, feed them, clothe clothe them, and give them board. And so here the, the ancient church is at, by the time John's writing this letter, all of the apostles have probably died. 
He's the last one standing. And the churches are very, very susceptible to who's traveling around doing the teaching. And you would get false teachers coming through, bringing different gospel and leading the church away from the truth of the gospel and leading it away from a life of love. And so John writes to guide them as to who they should receive and help and who they should not receive and should not help. So we have this traveling group of false teachers and this group, the particular nature of their false teaching is that they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. They deny that God would take on our humanity. And that's what they come teaching. They deny that God became human, lived, died and rose again. And as a result, look at what John says. He says, watch out. Got to be careful about these traveling false teachers. Watch out that you don't lose what we've worked for but that you may be rewarded fully. And anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ, they don't have God. Whoever continues in the teaching, in this teaching, my teaching, John's saying, the apostles' teaching, has both the Father and the Son. So these false teachers who are visiting, traveling all around the world, Christians are receiving them because they love the stranger, which is exactly what Jesus has just taught them to do. That's his command, love one another. So they're very loving and they just receive anyone, but they start receiving people who are teaching other things other than the teaching that Jesus handed down. And these false teachers come in, they've moved on from what Jesus, the teaching Jesus has given us. They come saying, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's kind of true what Jesus said, but let me advance it. And they run ahead. And as a result, they run ahead, they leave Jesus. They leave Jesus behind and they lose Jesus. And that's why this is so serious. Because anyone who rushes ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. See, this is what's at stake. They don't have God. They don't have life. That's bad. If you want to move away from the teaching of Jesus, then you will run away from God himself. And that's why John says, watch out. Um, now, that's an interesting command, watch out. Do you know this is one of the most common commands in the entire New Testament? Jesus doesn't stop talking about, be watchful, be on your guard. I wonder if we've taken this command, we, we know the command to love each other, right? We uh, Forgive each other, bear with one another. We know all of, yeah, Jesus told us that. But one of the main things he tells New Testament Christians is, watch out, have your eyes open. Don't be easily deceived. Have the Bible open. Test everything you hear against what God has said. It's very, very serious because there are people who want to deceive you as to what is true. And that's why he calls them the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, when we think of the Antichrist, we think of some crazy horror movie, right? With a beast or a three-headed dragon or some kind of weird person whose head spins and all of that stuff. But notice for John, the Antichrist is anyone who opposes the teaching of Jesus. They are, if you oppose Jesus' teaching, you are anti-Christ. You're against Christ, and he calls them the deceiver because they will lead others astray. 
The teaching of Christ is essential to salvation. And those who don't listen to the teaching of Jesus do not have salvation. It's this serious. John says, love each other, but you ought to have your eyes open. And it's not loving to let people to spread lies about who Jesus is and take them captive so that they end up not with Jesus. God has actually come in the flesh. In his great love, he lived a perfect life, died our death, rose again to give us new life and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might be washed clean of our sin. That actually happened in history. Don't tolerate anyone who would claim any otherwise. This is the great message which brings joy to every true Christian. It's a message we proclaim that Jesus is the one way to God. Is a chance to be forgiven. There is no Christianity without the truth about God's love in giving us His Son. And so don't walk away from it. Don't walk away from it. You know, Victor Hugo, uh, he famously said this. He said the supreme... He, he wrote Les Miserables, French, French writer? Yes. Uh, he wrote, the supreme happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved, love for ourselves? No, say rather, loved in spite of ourselves. There is a man who understood the heart of Christianity. You know, God doesn't love me for myself. He doesn't look at me and affirm everything, that every thought, every action, every belief I have. He doesn't affirm me. That's not what God's love is. God loves me, not for ourselves, but in spite of myself. That is what grace is. He loves me because he is love. He sees all of my flaws and he still loves me. That's the gospel. I wonder if you know um, Greg, uh, uh, Greg, L can't pronounce his, Lagnus, Laganus. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you want to get up and preach, Scott? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, uh, at the Sydney Olympics in 2000, he was, uh, he was the best in the world, best Olympic diver in the world. And he came out and um, uh, what people didn't know is he had AIDS and he was diving. And um, as he was diving, brilliant diver, best in the world by far. But as he was diving, he, um, one of his dives, he cracked his head against the platform, landed in the water, came up and was bleeding everywhere. And uh, there was this terrible, some stupid journalist revealed that he had HIV. And there was this utter panic about the blood in the pool, etc., etc. And this horrible scandal blew up and he became very famous around the world. Um, I remember watching a um, little documentary about him a couple of years ago. And he was asked... Uh, how do you stay calm when it's expected you'll get a 10 out of 10 every time? How do you stay calm in a moment like that? He was so good for so long. And he responded, you know, how do I stay calm when people expect 10 out of 10 every... He, this is what he said. He said, before I go and take a dive, if I'm feeling particularly nervous, I remind myself whether I make this dive or not, my mother still loves me. <laughs> you know, very cute, uh, very nice. But there's something true about this. You know, in the grand scheme of things, if I make this dive and I go, yeah, well, it's not as good as my mum loving me. And that's the Christian. I mean, that's why we have so much joy. That God loves us in spite of ourselves. Not when we get 10 out of 10 
in our work, in our career, in our relationships. He loves us even when we're getting one out of ten. And that sets you free. And this is a love that only Jesus brings. And so what are we to do with those who deny the truth and deceive others about the truth of Jesus' teaching? Whether it's about his love for us, his life, his humanity, his ethical, whatever it is, what are we to do? Well, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Don't welcome them. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that encourage us to welcome people. So in Romans 12, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Or in Hebrews 13, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And the Apostle Peter wrote, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. But here, what is John saying when he says, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't take them into your house or welcome them? Does this mean that we should not be friends with people who don't follow Jesus? Does this mean that we should not celebrate Christmas with family members who don't follow Jesus? That's what lots of cults teach. But it's not what the Bible teaches. We need to make some distinctions here. Notice who it is that John's saying we're not to welcome. It's someone who claims to follow Jesus but denies his teaching. He doesn't mean people who don't follow Jesus, uh, but people who claim to follow Jesus yet deny his teaching. And notice also, it's someone who comes in an official teaching capacity. They come with a teaching. And uh, he doesn't mean someone you're talking after church this morning and someone has some crazy ideas right, about the gospel. He says, oh, what Toby said, that's ridiculous. Don't agree with that or whatever. He's not saying kick that person out. Don't, don't share a little cupcake at morning tea with them. No, he's referring to someone who comes in official teaching capacity. And what he's saying about that person is don't let them teach in church. Now remember, when John ref- refers to a house, that's where the churches were in the, in the first century. He's not saying don't invite them over for Christmas. He's saying don't give them a platform in the church. And then he says don't share in their work. Don't take them in. Don't welcome them. Don't offer them fellowship. He means don't let them teach the church with their false doctrine. Don't share in their work. Don't support them financially. Don't give them lodging to enable them to keep teaching false things. In other words, we must have open homes, but we must close the church to false teaching. And so, of course, invite everyone for Christmas lunch. Jesus came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. We should show hospitality and practical love to everyone. But there are some Christian teachers who claim to follow Jesus, and they might even be very gifted teachers, and teach them very helpful things along the way, and yet if they deny even a part of Jesus' teaching, we ought to leave their churches, delete their podcasts, throw away their books, and unfollow their social media page. That's what John's saying. Walk in love and walk in the truth. 
Both of these things are intimately related. Real Christianity involves both real truth and real love. It's a little bit like a map and petrol for your car. A couple of times a year, Liz and I, we go traveling in our caravan, and I always underestimate how much more petrol our car uses when I'm towing a caravan. So we're on the freeway, and I'm like, oh, no. And we have to pull off the, car- pull off the side of the road and hunt down some rural backwater service station because run out of fuel. And here's the thing, if you want to get to your destination, you need to know where you're going, and you need to have fuel in the car. And I once heard someone say that truth, that's what truth and love are like. You know, John is saying truth is like Google Maps and love is like the fuel in your car. Truth will tell you where to go. Love will help you get there. It motivates us. It pushes us out. And Christians must have a map. Where is God taking us? That's where we're going. But we also must have fuel. There's no point sitting in our cars, studying the exact route, and never starting the engine and going where God calls us to go. And so the question is today, what person are you avoiding who Jesus is calling you to love? And what truths are you avoiding that Jesus is calling you to believe? Don't avoid it. Let me uh, leave you with this final story from Max Licato, which I found quite helpful in thinking about the combination of truth and love Uh, Max Licato, in one of his books, he tells a story about a mayor who finds out that a bridge has been washed away in the storms overnight and a whole bunch of cars has driven uh, where they thought a bridge was going to be and they've crashed into the water and and died. He comes to his three chosen men, this mayor, and he says, hey, I need you to do something. What I need you to do is stand on the side of the road and warn the drivers not to make the left turn across the bridge, but to take the right road that leads along the river. And the three men said, but they drive so fast, how can we warn them? And so the mayor gives the men three signs, three wooden signs that they're to hold up, stand at the road to stop the people driving off the bridge and into the waters. And so the men hurried out to the dangerous curve, put, held up their signs, and uh, the first guy goes, I think I should kind of be first. My sign reads, bridge out, right? So he walks up the road several hundred metres before the turn and he takes his place. And the second guy goes, perhaps I should be second so that the drivers will slow down. And so he he goes up the road 100 metres and has his sign, reduce speed. Good idea. And the third man says, I'll stand at the curve so that people will get off the wide road and onto the narrow road. And his sign simply read, take the right road. And, uh, and so the three men, they stood there with their sides, ready to warn travellers uh, about the washed-out bridge. And for a couple of hours, as cars would approach, the first man would stand up, shake his sign, and they would see bridge out. Oh, a little bit nervous. Then they'd see the second man reduce speed. They'd back off the accelerator, and then the third man would hold up his side, take the right road, and they'd turn down the right road along the river, and they would be safe. And over a series of hours, many, many people were kept from peril, and the lives of many were saved. But then they grew lax. The first man got sleepy, and he thought, you know, I'll just sit here, you know, I'll, I'll have a sleep, I'll just prop my sign up against 
uh, against this wall and I'll have a little snooze. But as he did so, his arm kind of slid across the sign and so that all people could really see as they were driving past was the sign bridge. Mm, that's interesting. Second man didn't grow tired, but he grew conceited. And the longer he stood warning people, the more important he felt. Few people even pulled off the side of the road to thank him for saving their lives. They said, we might have died had you not been here. He's like, yeah, you're so right. How many people would, would not be here today if it weren't for me? And so he came to think that he was just as important as the sign he carried. So he took it off, set it up on the ground, and he stood beside it, unaware, as he did, that he too blocked the sign as people were driving past. As people would drive past, they'd see him dancing like this, and they just thought he was advertising some weight lost program. <laughs> Reduce. And then the third guy comes along and he didn't fall asleep and he didn't come preoccupied with himself. He kind of had an issue with the message. You just think, oh, this is a little bit too strident, a bit dogmatic. People should be given a choice in this matter. Who am I to tell them which is the right road and which is the wrong road? So he decided to alter the wording of the sign. He changed it to right road preferred. But he thought, oh, I don't want to moralize people. So he changed it, oh, so he changed it to uh, something else, right road suggested. And then finally he goes, nah, it's still too trite. He crosses out and he writes something else, just right. And this is what he wrote, right road. One of two equally valid alternatives. And so as the first man slept, as the second man stood and the third man altered the message, one car after another, plunged into the river. The moral of the story, don't change the message. This is a message of life. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't back down on it. And when you hear people twisting and changing and deceiving people about what is in here, don't welcome them. Don't give them a platform. Because why? We love people and we want to walk in the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that we've heard today from the Apostle John, that we are to walk in love and walk in truth. Some of us, we love the truth. We love being right, but we lack love. Change us, we pray, Father. And others of us, we, um, we love being gentle and kind, and we hate drawing distinctions and having the awkward conversations. Keep us from pulling these two things apart. Help us to be faithful to Jesus as we walk in love and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.